So if you've been around or if you haven't, uh, we are doing an interesting series this summer called Benedictions, Doxologies, and Prayers. These are usually quite short, and so you don't have to stand for long. Some of these are well-known and some are not. Last week, uh, Brent came out of Romans 15, 13, was much about hope. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And he gave us a really encouraging word about abounding in hope. As I was thinking about what text I might use, I looked at a lot of them that were available. They were kind of all about peace and hope. And I wasn't trying to be hardened about peace and hope. I just was thinking, is there something that takes me in a different direction than peace and hope? And I found just a few verses before Brent's, a passage that I'm sure I've read, but I had never really seen. And so we're going to look at this in Romans 15, 5 through 7 today, a passage that calls us to a kind of unity that might be hard to believe might be challenging for the world to even imagine as possible, but we're going to see what the Lord has to tell us here. So I invite you to stand as we read our text today from Romans 15, verses 5 through 7. Paul writes to the Christians at Rome, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those parts that we know well, and we thank you for those parts, perhaps like this verse, that we've never really noticed. Pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you might teach us your word. In those places where we think unity might be impossible, that you would give us hope. And in those areas where we're just not even sure how to move forward with people so different from us, even believers, that you would show us what you've done, that that might not just be possible, but that might be your plan for us. Lord, help us now. We come in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a really exciting few weeks at our house, at the Higginbottom house, and mostly for our six-year-old Will, My mom is here this morning and she's delighted because she recently was able to hand off two big boxes of my childhood toys to me. So imagine these octagonal boxes that are almost as tall as I am. I don't even know how I got them in the car, but I got them home and I knew when I opened them up, there would be some Star Wars toys in there and there were, but there were also, I've forgotten that I had a whole cache of GI Joe stuff. So for those of you who maybe are a little bit younger, I'll say it this way, a long time ago in a galaxy far away, there were no iPhones and there were no Xboxes and we had these things called action figures. I know it's kind of primordial, (laughs) but we had action figures. G.I. Joe's were military action figures and we, we played with them. I apparently had a lot of them. I only brought two this morning. I don't even remember their names, but they're here. And so realize my son, Will, knows nothing about these guys, but we're opening them up, and pretty quickly he figures out these are soldiers, and they're built for fighting. And so we finish unpacking, and Will says, Daddy, I didn't know you were a boy who played with G.I. Joes. Like, you know, that was somehow shocking to him since he just learned what G.I. Joes are. And I'm thinking, well, I kind of forgot too. And then he says, Daddy, you're cool. And I sort of smiled, and before I had a chance to correct him, he said, Daddy, do you want to have a big war? And I couldn't really resist it. It was so cute. 
And so he chooses his men and his weapons of war and vehicles, and he's got all this kind of intimidating stuff. And that leaves me with the leftovers. So I've got like the broken down army men and the JV little war vehicles. And, and so we're there on the floor and it's, we're entrenched, you know, it's like trench warfare. He's over there, I'm over here. And, and so it starts and he launches a missile and sends a tank over to my side and then it's my turn. I don't have much to fight with. So we continue, go back and forth until Will basically dominates my, my side. So I've been reflecting on this for a few weeks and not just because I lost, but I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking, Will is a really sweet boy. Why didn't he propose a G.I. Joe fellowship dinner? I mean, why, why is it so natural for him to say, here are these guys, let's go to war. And then I start thinking a little more broadly, why does conflict come so naturally for us and community doesn't? Why are we better at digging trenches than building bridges? And really, you know this, it's not just six-year-olds with GI Joes who are doing trench warfare. Look around you. Nations are entrenched against nations, companies against companies politicians against politicians, races are entrenched against races, neighborhoods against neighborhoods, even family members against family members. And a wonderful development now is we don't even have to meet our enemies face to face. We just open up Twitter or Facebook or go to the comments section and fire away. You know, what could go wrong there? So with the world so divided, is there any hope for unity? And sadly, the church can be just as entrenched as the world. We see it in denominations and in local churches. Sort of at the global level and at the local level, we struggle to be united with our brothers and sisters in Christ. What's encouraging, I think, maybe discouraging, is that Rome wasn't much different. In Romans 14 15, Paul is writing to a church. He's writing to people. He's addressing a situation where there's all kinds of different people and they don't agree about a lot of things and they're divided over what we might call secondary issues. Some Jewish Christians believe that people need to observe the Jewish dietary laws to be a, to be a Christian. And other believers think that would be a return to legalism. And then you have some Gentiles caught up in the middle of it who just don't know what it means to follow Jesus. So just like today, there are all these voices in Rome but it's really difficult for them to be together with one voice. So if the church is so divided, is there any hope for unity? Paul's prayer in Romans 15, five and six reminds us that God has a glorious plan for his church. God wants us to live in such harmony with one another that together with one voice, we may glorify him. Now that all just kind of sounds like church words, I think. It sounds great, but it leaves us with messy questions to clean up. If Christians really are so different, how can we really be unified, united? Wouldn't it be easier just to let us stick with our people who are like us? The Lord has answers to these questions, but a lot of times the answers aren't really easy for us to hear. Like the early church, we need to do some hard work in this area. So let's consider what the Lord has done to bring us together in Christ. First, I want us to see that unity starts with God. If you look at the passage, notice where Paul starts. He doesn't say, come on, Romans, figure it out, get united. If you look at verse five, Paul is praying. 
He's starting with God. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So why must our pursuit of unity start with God? Well, because a unity that starts with us is doomed to fail. Exhibit A is the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, these people are united, but they're united in disobedience. They don't want to be God's image bearers. They don't want to spread out and fill the earth with God's glory. So they come together. What are they going to do? They're going to build a tower. They're going to make a name for themselves, not for God's glory. So God sees the destructive potential of this kind of unity, and he confuses their language, scatters them across the face of the earth. Now, we need to see that this is basically the default mode of how we pursue unity. We start with us. We come up with an idea, and it's ultimately about us. But that minimizes the problem when we start with us, the the problem of sin that separates us from God and others. And when we minimize that, it's impossible for us to find a real unity. The best we can do is claim a victory when our team wins a championship. So a city celebrates, or our nation wins a war, so our nation celebrates, or our candidate wins an election, so about half the country celebrates. But if you look at it, after all our best efforts, the world is still entrenched. But a unity that starts with God makes sense in light of God's nature, because as Christians, we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, our triune God is one God in three persons. Kids, think about it this way. Before there was anything that you see, grass, trees, sky, mountains, beaches, water, before there were any people on this earth, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed in perfect communion, union with one another. So at the center of reality, there's not division, there's not nothing. There's a loving, personal God who's united. So our God is the ultimate picture of unity and diversity and diversity and unity. If we listen, we hear it in the scriptures everywhere. We hear it in Deuteronomy 6.4. It's a passage every young Israelite would learn. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We hear it at Jesus' baptism in Mark 1.11 when the Father speaks these words over him, you are my beloved son. We hear it in John 10.30 when Jesus says, I am the Father are one. We hear it in a benediction that says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. See, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not entrenched against one another. They're perfectly united in planning, accomplishing, and applying our redemption. So when we start with God, we're praying to the one who already enjoys perfect unity, and that's the right place to start. A unity that starts with God also makes sense in light of God's plan. So we often wonder, what's the Lord doing in the world? But do you know we don't have to guess about God's plan? He's actually told us in his word. In Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, Paul tells us that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. What is it? Then Paul writes, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what's the plan? God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but that sounds big. 
think it at least means this. The Lord cares about the division in our world. Unity is not just a peripheral concern for him. It's at the heart of what he's doing. Do you know the New Testament talks more about the unity of the church than heaven and hell? It's fascinating. See, Jesus isn't just interested in a transaction. He's interested in the total transformation of people and creation. He's interested, as as Revelation says, in making all things new. How does he do that? He wants to unite all things in himself. So if we start with ourselves, we can't unite much of anything. We can't even unite our own hearts, our own families to worship God this morning. We need his help. But if we start with God, we have everything we need in him. We think about the world and the division, the hatred, and we get weary and discouraged. But look at how the passage starts. God is the God of endurance and encouragement. If we wonder how to take hold of the endurance and encouragement we need to keep pursuing unity, all we need to do is back up one verse. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So God gives us endurance and encouragement through his word. Everything in here, Paul says, was written for our instruction so that we might have endurance and encouragement and ultimately hope. So are we in the word in such a way that God is giving us endurance and encouragement and ultimately hope? So starting with God gives us hope that it's not hopeless. He cares about our unity more than we do. Unity starts with God, but it also has a goal. So what's the goal of the church's unity? Look again at our text. Paul writes again, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. And we ask Paul, why? And he says that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the goal of the church's unity is worship. That's not surprising, but why is united worship so important? Some of you know this, that I'm a musician, at least a little bit in my mind. <laughs> and uh, I occasionally get to stand up here without the robe and play guitar and sing. And in 20 years of leading worship in some capacity, I can honestly tell you my favorite moments in music have never been playing and singing by myself. You know, singing solo is actually pretty easy. I don't have to worry about you or anybody else. I just need my chord chart, my guitar, and don't forget the melody. That's singing solo. It's easy. But It's dull by comparison. So all my favorite moments in music have involved singing and playing with other people. I remember my my good friend, Russ Whitfield, who's planning a church in Washington, D.C. now. I remember a Florida trip with our high school students, and I was singing and playing with Russ. And uh, if you know Russ, he's wonderfully talented musically. We had just finished one song, which I was leading, and just singing this song about what Jesus had done for us. And we're at the end of the week, and I just... I broke down in tears. So I'm crying. The next song up is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. You know, like, good luck, Robbie. You're already a wreck. And um, so I'm, you know, I finished the song, and I'm, I'm supposed to sing the next one. I look over at Russ thinking maybe Russ can bail me out. He'll take the next song. And he's crying too. And I, man, okay, we'll just have to do this together. So this wonderfully sweet moment through the tears, we worship the Lord together, unforgettable. And one time I was playing with Brian Piper. Some of you have seen Brian playing here or arranging stuff for us. He played something so ridiculous on the piano that I just started laughing out loud while I was playing. And luckily I wasn't singing, but Brian does that to me. 
And another time I was singing with Brian and Claire Dillahunty, and all of a sudden we have this three-part harmony that just sort of appears. And it just did something inside of me. I don't want this song to end. Can it please just go on? And on so many occasions, I've been overwhelmed when I hear students or young adults or you singing together with one voice. And I just want to stop singing and listen and soak it up. So in music, different voices, different instruments come together in harmony. We're all singing and playing the same song, but we're not singing and playing the same notes. It's not just unison, same song, but different notes coming together in harmony. And when it's good, there's this beauty that's really hard to describe. So take that metaphor and apply it to church unity. As Christians, we're tempted to sing solo, to think we can have Jesus without his church, or to come to church but not to really be the church and be connected to the church. So it's easier to sing solo. We don't have to worry about anyone else. But as in music, so in life, solo, going solo is dull by comparison. So are we just singing solo? As churches, we're also tempted to sing in unison. What I mean is our churches are often more homogenous than diverse. And we don't see a lot of churches where there are a lot of different kinds of people coming together. There's beautiful unity and diversity, and so there's harmony. So are we just singing in unison? And you might be thinking, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with unison? Isn't it easier if there's a different kind of church for every kind of person? Of course that's easier. Well, isn't it messy to have all kinds of different people in the same church? Yes, again, of course, that's messy. So why would we do it? Well, imagine you're reading an amazing story. You've got this book, and it's a real page turner. You can't put it down. You're halfway through, wondering, how is this going to end? You're just halfway, and suddenly I appear, and I snatch the book away from you and run off. You would probably chase me down and form tackle me. Because you can't live without the ending. You have to know how the story ends. Well, when it comes to God's story, we already know how it ends. In Revelation 7, 9 through 10, we read, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's story is going toward a heavenly choir from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It's going toward a gathering around the throne where we're together with one voice glorifying our God. The story's not going toward singing solo or singing in unison. The story is going toward a unity and a harmony that the world has never seen. The question is, are we content to live like we don't know the ending? Are we content to pray things like, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and then say amen and not pursue the kind of unity that we'll enjoy one day in glory? See, God's not content for us to wait, and neither is Paul. Paul knows that when different people at Rome or anywhere else come together to worship Christ, it brings him great glory. And when that doesn't happen, there's a cost Division mutes the church's worship. But there's another cost because the goal of our unity is not just worship, it's witness. In John 17, moments before being arrested, Jesus prayed to his Father 
The cross was hours away, and Jesus' priorities shine through in his prayer. It's this amazing moment. We get to eavesdrop on Jesus in this moment. Jesus, what is on your heart right now? And hours before the cross, do you know who was on Jesus' heart? We were. And do you know what he was praying for us? He was praying for our unity. In John 17, 21, Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So there's not a more radical prayer for unity than that. Good luck finding it. Jesus prays the same thing, basically, again, two verses later in verse 23. So Jesus is praying that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. What? What does that mean? He's praying that we would participate in the unity of the Trinity. There's not a higher standard for our unity. Is that the kind of unity that we're seeking? Why is this so important to Jesus? Well, both times in John 17, he says this unity will be a witness to the world. Jesus wants the world to look at his church and be baffled into belief. So what should be baffling about the church? When natural enemies live together as friends, that's baffling. Or when people who should be divided for 100 reasons live together as family, that's baffling. When the world sees that, they can't deny that Jesus is real. Because there's no other explanation for what they're seeing. This stuff doesn't happen in the world, but it should be happening in our churches. Is our unity baffling the world into belief? So now we see why we can't be content just to go solo or just to sing in unison with people like us. God wants to live, God wants us to live in harmony, not just with our people and our tribe, but with people from every tribe and every nation, because that's the kind of worship that causes the world to take notice. But how? How could we ever get out of our trenches? How could we ever learn to embrace the other, to worship together with one voice? And that leads us to our last point. Unity requires the gospel. You may be listening and thinking, wow, this is interesting at least. The Lord cares deeply about unity. I can imagine it would be amazing if his people were united to worship in. But come on, man. You really think that's ever going to happen? That would take an absolute miracle, you might think. And if you think that, you are right. But let me tell you a story. It was December 1914. It was just a few months into World War I. It was a war that would eventually claim the lives of over 15 million people. So on the Western Front, British, French, and Belgian soldiers were already engaged in a brutal fight with the Germans. It was trench warfare at its worst. I mean, imagine being in trenches here and then trenches at the back of the sanctuary or maybe across Oak Lawn, 50 yards, 100 yards away, and you're just shooting at each other and you're not going anywhere. One German artist described a landscape as lice, rats, barbed wire, bombs, corpses, blood, liquor, mice, cats, bullets, mortars, and steel. He says that's what war is. It's the world of the devil. But in that world of darkness, a light broke through on Christmas Eve. An English soldier, Albert Morin, wrote this in his diary. He says, it was a beautiful moonlit night, frost on the ground, white almost everywhere. And there was a lot of commotion in the German trenches. And then there were those lights. I don't know what they were. And then they sang Silent Night. I shall never forget it. It was one of the highlights of my life. 
Similar stories like this emerged all along the Western Front. A lot of times Germans would put up Christmas trees above the trenches and they would make signs trying to communicate in English, you know fight, we know fight, doing the best that they could. So slowly men who had been trying to kill each other moments before start climbing out of their trenches and meeting in the middle in no man's land. So the war stops for an evening or a day or multiple days in some cases. And not everywhere and not perfectly. There were people who did not want to participate and there were people who did not like what was happening. Usually the higher ranking commanding officers who didn't want being friends with the enemy to be part of what was going on. But in so many places, the miraculous Christmas truce happened. So there in the middle of no man's land, these men come together and they sing songs and they exchange gifts and food and they even play soccer together. Chaplains conduct joint services and enemies are working together to bury the dead who had been in no man's land for sometimes weeks or a couple months. So how do we make sense of the Christmas truce of 1914? The only explanation really is Christmas. Christmas was a story big enough to turn enemies into friends. For a moment, being English, French, or German took a backseat to something else. For a moment, there was this unity that the world couldn't explain. And the people who participated in it would never forget it. Friends, we need a story big enough to get us out of our trenches. And we have one. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. In his coming, living, dying, rising again, Jesus has given us a story big enough to change everything, to turn enemies into friends, to turn strangers into family. In Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, Paul's thinking about how Jesus has conquered this division between Jew and Gentile. As I read this, I want you to think about all the lines of division in our world, maybe the ones that cut for you, racial lines or socioeconomic lines or political lines, or maybe lines in school, like whether you're athletic or academic or whatever you might be, attractive. What are the lines of division? Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's so much here. I think it's hard for us to comprehend. What is Paul saying? He's saying the cross is God's answer to our division. But why? Because division happens when we value anything more than Jesus. You value this thing about you or this identity about you more than Jesus and someone else is different and so we obviously can't come together because this is the most important thing to me and you don't share that and so we're enemies. What does the cross do? Paul says, really the Bible calls what I just described idolatry. It's the reason we can't come together And Paul says, Jesus has conquered the sin, separates us from God and from one another. He is our peace. He has killed the hostility. He's made us one in him. And this is the game changer. Being in him gives us a new identity that overshadows every other identity. Being in Christ is more powerful than any identity that divides us. And there are many of those, Jew, Gentile, Caucasian, African-American, Latino, Asian, rich, poor, American, Democrat, Republican, and lots of others. Do you believe this? 
in your life does being in Christ force every other identity to take a back seat? Does being in Christ empower you to love and welcome people, believers, who are very different from you? Or are you, are we, still entrenched? Klein Snodgrass writes this. He says, so many parts of our identity that, are, that we assume are determinative are not and do not deserve to be. Christ is not an accessory to our identity as if we were making a small addition by letting him in. He takes over our identity so that everything else becomes an accessory. Christ is our primary and determining identity. Think about what the Lord has done. No one's more cross-cultural than Jesus. No one has gone further or done more than Jesus to love the stranger because we were entrenched against God. He had every right to stay entrenched against us. But Jesus loved us and he left his security and he came into this world. He stepped into no man's land and we shot him. Together with one voice, we screamed, crucify him. But death couldn't hold him down. He rose again. Why? Paul's telling us to destroy the hostility, to unite us with himself, to welcome us into his family, to give us a whole new life, a whole new identity in him and then with one another. Do you want to know how Christ welcomes you? Look at the front of the bulletin. We like looking at this statement, but I want you to personalize it today. On the front of the bulletin, this statement at the bottom, I just want to ask you if you see yourself in here, are you spiritually weary and seeking rest? Are you mourning and longing for comfort? Are you struggling and desiring victory? Do you sin and need a savior? Are you a stranger and wanting fellowship? Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? If that's you, Jesus welcomes you. He knows your weariness, your pain, your struggle, your sin, your loneliness, your hunger. He knows it all. And he loves you. He welcomes you. He opens the doors wide and invites you to come. Find what you're looking for in him. So friends, come to Jesus and know his welcome. Now, if we've experienced that welcome, Paul's application is wonderfully simple. If you look back at Romans 15, verse 7, it says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He's welcomed us. And so it's only natural that he calls us to welcome others in the same way. And this is the beautiful simplicity of the gospel. God reconciles us to himself, and then he gives us this ministry of reconciliation. He welcomes us, and then we get to welcome others. He loves us, and we get to love others in the same way. Do you realize every believer at PCPC is called to this? Not just the Connections pastor or the frontline volunteers. We're all called to come together and show the beauty of the body of Christ to one another and to the world. So what would happen if we all began to welcome others as Christ has welcomed us? What if we cross the world's boundaries because we know the power of the cross? When we walk through these doors to the church, what if we prayed, Lord, whom can I welcome as you have welcomed me? Or when we go to school or go to work, what if we prayed, Lord, whom can I welcome as you have welcomed me? When we're at home in our neighborhoods, what if we prayed, Lord, whom can I welcome as you have welcomed me? The world is aching for a story big enough to heal 
our broken humanity, and only we have it. The world needs to see the power of the gospel in the church, power to get us out of our trenches, power to unite us in Christ despite all our differences, and power to make our community, locally and globally, a little foretaste of heaven. See, the world needs to see the church being the church. So church, by God's grace, let's be the church, together with one voice, glorifying the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all that Christ has done to unite things in himself. Lord, for all the ways that he crossed every boundary to come and love us and die for us, that we might be one with him, that we might be made one with one another who are in Christ. And Lord, we admit that we don't know how to apply this always. Lord, help us to see that this identity that we have in Christ overwhelms every other thing about us, that we might come together with people who are very different from us. We pray that you would do a work here and beyond here in your church around the world, that Christians would truly somehow live as one, as Jesus prayed, that the world might believe that you sent Jesus. Lord, we know this is a big part of your plan, and so we pray that you would help us. Help us to see. Help us to get out of our trenches. Help us to rest in the reality that Jesus is the church's one foundation. Hallelujah. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.